welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. Welcome to our Women in Arbitration podcast mini-series, a platform for women's voices across the global international arbitration community. I'm Lucy Winnington-Ingram, an international arbitration lawyer based in Reed Smith's London office. In these episodes, we will hear from leading women in the international arbitration space and discuss industry news, trends, developments, and matters of interest. And with that, let's get started. Hello and welcome back to Arbitral Insights and the latest in our Women in Arbitration mini-series. I'm Susie Savage, an international arbitration lawyer and counsel based in Reesmith's London office. And today I'm genuinely delighted and honoured to be joined by Meg Kinnear, the Secretary General of the International Centre for Settlement of Investment Disputes, or better known to us all as ICSID. This is the second time in the past 12 months that Meg has kindly given up her time to take part in dialogues with Reesmith about important topics in international arbitration. In the course of our discussion, we will cover topics born from International Women's Day, an annual celebration which took place this year on 8th of March, as well as some key updates on the work at ICSID. These topics are by no means limited for discussion to that one day. Indeed, promoting and having an open dialogue on diversity, equality and inclusion is part of Reed Smith's ethos every day of the year and one which I am proud that my firm follows, and one I am extremely passionate about. So, by way of very brief introduction, Meg Kinnear is currently the Secretary General of ICSID at the World Bank, having joined ICSID in 2009. She was formerly the Senior General Counsel and Director General of the Trade Law Bureau of Canada, where she was responsible for the conduct of all international investment and trade litigation involving Canada, and participated in the negotiation of bilateral investment agreements. Prior to this, Meg also worked as the Executive Assistant to the Deputy Minister of Justice of Canada and as counsel at the Civil Litigation Section of the Canadian Department of Justice. Hi, Meg. You are an iconic figure in the arbitration world and the role of Secretary General of ICSID is an iconic one. Please, would you share with me a little about your professional background and how you have come to be elected to the position of Secretary General of ICSID and indeed elected for the third time? Absolutely. Well, it's, it's lovely to chat with you today and nice to see you. As you noted, I'm a Canadian citizen who got my formal legal training at McGill University in Montreal. And I spent my early career doing civil litigation with the Department of Justice of Canada, which basically defended the Canadian government in constitutional and civil litigation. And as well, we did a fair amount of administrative law work in that context. Then I went and had a completely different experience helping our deputy minister of justice basically to run his office. And then to yet a completely different experience again to head up the Trade Law Bureau of Canada. And at that point, the Trade Law Bureau had been doing mainly things like the WTO, WTO uh, negotiations and litigation. And I arrived just on the cusp of the beginning of a wave of NAFTA cases that has continued probably to the current day. So we had to very quickly get up to steam on how to do these investment disputes 
And that, of course, led to hopefully an expertise, but at the very least, a love of investor state work. And when the opportunity came up for the secretary general job, uh, I, I put my name in and I was extraordinarily lucky to have the World Bank then propose me to the membership for a vote and successfully received the position, which I've been doing since 2009. So uh, I'm very, very blessed. It is the world's most interesting job, especially right now, where we're at a sort of crossroads period in terms of investor state. And there's a lot of looking at what do we do well, what can we do better? So it's been a really interesting time to be the uh, Secretary General at ICSID. Well, we'll come back to the work at ICSID in just a moment, but I'm really curious to know more about you as a woman coming to have such a fantastic role. And as you know, and we all know, the issue of gender disparity is currently high on the agenda in all walks of life, and rightly so. So I'm wondering, did you encounter any resistance to your appointment at ICSID on the grounds of gender? No, in fact, I think I, I had the opposite experience. And I was very, very fortunate that when I was being recruited for this position, the president of the World Bank was Robert Zellick. And one of his very stated goals was to have basically parity or equity in the senior management ranks of the World Bank. So I, I think that I certainly fit into that overall policy. So to the contrary, it was, it was probably a good thing, if anything. But I have to say, when I received the position and started as a member of the World Bank, there is an amazing group of senior female leaders there. So I've had a terrific group of colleagues, but it's mostly to say that uh, Mr. Zellick certainly walked the talk when he made that commitment. So I was very lucky to be applying for the job at the time when he was looking for females who could lead in a senior role at the bank. That is fantastic to hear, actually. And as I say, very encouraging for all women in all walks of life to understand that there are these equitable and encouraging huge institutions that, that really do look after women. So going to International Women's Day, are there any particular reflections related to International Women's Day that you could share with us, please? Yeah, a number of thoughts. Obviously, this is an issue that is <laughs> that is always on our, our mind. We have had a goal at ICSID to try and increase the diversity, both of women, but also regional diversity. I think they're both important goals as we go forward. And we've always said you want the people working in this field, and in particular, the arbitrators who are doing these cases, to reflect the the world that they are actually working in and to be that diverse. So we've made a number of efforts over the past years, and I think in particular, just to focus the remarks on, on gender diversity, we have made huge progress uh, when we first started looking at how many females are actually doing this work. I think the first number we calculated over time was something like 6% of the arbitral pool was female. And we're now up to the state where we probably have between 20 and 25% of the arbitrators selected every year. So it is huge progress from where we've come. Obviously, it's something that we've got to keep our eye on and keep first in mind. And I think in particular, institutions have really contributed to diversifying the pool of arbitrators. And one of the messages, obviously, that we keep trying to repeat is it's going to take all of us 
if we're ever going to get to anything that looks like a sort of 50-50. I think that message is resonating. We are seeing increasingly counsel for respondent and counsel for claimant appointing female arbitrators. And I think the experience we've had putting a number of female practitioners and female arbitrators forward has actually been very helpful because it brings to mind who is there and that there really are a lot of capable females that you could select. So it builds on itself in that sense. So we've made a lot of progress. Obviously, we've got to keep making that kind of progress. So that's my sort of first and my main thought that we were talking about during International Women's Day. The other sort of thoughts I have are perhaps more with respect to females in the profession. There are a couple of things I often say that I think are important. Number one is visibility is hugely important. Again, it's really important for others in the profession to see what capable females are out there who could be selected as arbitrators or first chair counsel or whatever whatever role. But I think the visibility is key. And I know it's really hard because we are all hugely busy in our day jobs. So adding on something like a conference or a, uh, an article or something like that is tough. But I think it's extraordinarily important to make sure that you're visible in your profession. And especially where we're doing international arbitration, it's not like you run into everybody at the courthouse every day. We're in a community where we're far flung all over the world. So it makes that kind of visibility even more important. The second thing that I think is really important is flexibility. And I have to say, when I look at the various things I've done over my career, I was petrified every single change that I made. I think I was worried that each change took me off the path I thought I should have been on. And yet each thing that I did taught me new skills that I never would have had otherwise. So when I look at it, it all comes together. and almost looks like it was perfectly planned and it wasn't. But the message I get from it is, you know, to take the risk and be willing to sort of go out of your comfort zone now and again, because it really does have a good impact. The last thing which I think is really important is the whole question of mentorship. And I think it's really important to have a number of mentors. And when I think about mentorship, I don't think of it as much as a sort of very structured, you know, we will talk every week for one year and we will go through these subjects, but more uh, an informal communications, just getting to know various other women in the profession, let them know what you're doing. And I think that kind of relationship, I look at it as a mentoring, but I think it's, it's a really useful thing in your career. And I know uh, whenever I've been asked, and I know certainly all my colleagues, women are more than delighted to be mentors and supporters of one another. So I think the message is do not be scared to reach out and ask because the person on the other side will be delighted. And I think it's something that will, it enriches both of your careers. That's an important clarion call to the, to the women out there as well. And I would just say that as a practitioner in this area, I am slowly but surely beginning to see more female arbitrators being brought onto tribunal panels. And that is that is life enhancing uh, and just very encouraging for women in this profession. Just a bit of follow up. You may have noticed last week we actually uh, it was covered in the arbitration media that the first all female ad hoc committee had been appointed. 
And it was really, really nice sort of seeing the reactions of people and the, the emails back, etc. So I just, as you say, when it's heartwarming, it continues to be heartwarming and progress continues to be made. Absolutely. And I have to say at our firm, we've signed the pledge such that we are committed to seeking to make the appointments of females to the tribunal panels with whom we work. As briefly mentioned at the start of our conversation, you very kindly participated in a really interesting roundtable webinar moderated by Reed Smith in July of last year on the much debated, debated in events and publications, and for good reason, draft code of conduct for adjudicators in investor state dispute settlement. It's a hot topic. I'd be really grateful if you wouldn't mind, please, just giving us an update on the draft code, as well as tell us more generally what the arbitration world at large might expect from ICSID over the coming years. We hopefully come out of the grip of the pandemic. Exactly. There's at least light at the end of the tunnel right now. Yes, on the code of conduct, actually, there's been a lot of work since we we talked and had that really uh, wonderful presentation about the proposed code. As you know, we put that code out jointly working with the Unsuchal Secretariat in May of 2020. There were numerous conversations, presentations, webinars, so that people would get familiar with it. And in March 3rd and 4th of this year, 2021, we had a two-day consultation with member states going through literally sort of line by line of that code. And I think the main message is, is first of all, there was a lot of consensus and uh, clearly reaffirmed you're on the right track. This is what we are looking for. Secondly, there obviously are a couple of provisions which motivate discussion. The main one, of course, is the famous provision about double hatting and the debate about whether you should prohibit double hatting, regulate in some format, or not touch the notion of double hatting at all. All right, I think was very interesting is that uh, the delegates were very thoughtful in terms of recognizing a concern or the potential for concern in certain fact situations with double hatting, and yet also recognizing how a prohibition would potentially cut out a lot of the new entrants into the field, which includes females, people from diverse regions, and people that we've been making huge efforts to get into the field. So they were very aware of the sort of implications that a prohibition of double hatting could have. The long and short at the end of the day is that we are producing a second draft, and I'm hoping it will be available by the end of April. And essentially what it's going to do is be a bit more focused on the exact obligations. It's going to try and take a a proposal with respect to a modified double hatting, and it's going to try and add a few more concrete examples. I think that was the other concern. Delegates wanted to make sure this could easily be applied. And a lot of the concrete examples, much like you see in the IBA rules, uh, was something that people thought would be very useful, whether it's in a commentary or, or whatever. So we're going to get this new version out, and I think that's the direction you will see it in. There was a lot of encouragement to get this finalized. I think everybody wants this and we all feel that this is something we can all agree on as an arbitral community. So I think we'll make a lot of progress in the next basically six to eight months. And that's where we stand on our code. So just on that then, when do you think the code will be finalized and published? 
certainly this next draft will be published when we send it to states. So in the next four to eight weeks. Uh, in terms of finalization, I don't know, but I'm hoping in the next year that this could happen. We have, as you know, produced this with the UNCITRAL Secretariat. So we've gone hand in hand. At a certain point, I think the text goes in one direction with the working group three at UNCITRAL so that they can think of it in the context of certainly the UNCITRAL rules. And some states have thought, do we need to do this almost as a standalone document, much like a Mauritius type convention? So I think in working group three, they will do some thinking about what's the mechanism for implementing. Um, at the same time at ICSID, we have thought all along that the best way or easiest way to implement this would be just to simply add it to the declaration that arbitrators sign. So we may have a bit of a different implementation, but right now we're focusing on get the content right, and then it will go into those two tracks in terms of implementation. Excellent. That sounds something to look forward to. And I think you were also going to very kindly just tell us a bit about the ICSID rules. Absolutely. This, as you know, has been the main project uh, for several years now. And in fact, just before the pandemic, we had put out our working paper number four, and we had planned an April 6th meeting with all of our member states, when of course the pandemic kept all of us home. So what we did to try and keep the momentum was to get one more round of comments. And late spring, we will be sending a further revised version. We think we have gone very far in bridging the divides that still remain. So our hope is that once this next version comes out, that states will be in a position to say we're basically ready to vote, or uh, they may want to consult on one or two items. But I truly think we are pretty much there. And we've been working on this for a while, as have our states. So I hope to see those put to a vote at least by the end of 2020. And then implementation is pretty simple thereafter. So that's my optimistic, but I think realistic assessment for where we're going on the ICSID arbitration rules. In both the code and the arbitration rules, I think ICSID and I think many, if not all member states, share the goal that it's time to get some concrete progress and start working with and using these kinds of new documents. And we've done a huge amount of work on it. I think we're ready to incorporate it into day-to-day -day practice now. So that's my hope that sort of by the end of this year, you'll have both of those items as part of our daily practice. If it's appropriate for me to ask, can I ask which have been the biggest sticking points with the new rules, please? Absolutely. Well, I think the biggest sticking points have been, and this will not surprise you, first of all, third-party funding which is a new provision that I think all rules are starting to try and grapple with and that people have very different positions on. So I'd call that probably the number one most difficult thing. And then the rest have not been difficult in terms of concept. It's more, you know, what is the exact scope of the rule? But the ones that I'm thinking of in particular, security for costs and what would be the considerations for an award of security for costs, uh, increasing transparency, and uh, to what extent do you do that? I think everybody is supportive of that, but some in different degrees. So trying to 
strike the right balance on that. We had some discussion about our expedited rules, but that seems to have been uh, fairly simply resolved. So I think that will not be too contentious at this point. And we've also had, I think, a lot of take up on the mediation rules. So those, I think, will be ready to go as well without too much difficulty. So really, transparency, third-party funding, and security for costs are probably the main ones where states might want to chat a little bit more. But I do think we're pretty close to consensus. So we will keep our fingers crossed. Certainly will. That's really interesting. And thank you. I've taken up a huge amount of your time, so I probably ought to let you go. So Meg, thank you very much for so kindly joining me today. It's been a really interesting and insightful conversation, and I am very grateful. Thank you. I really enjoyed chatting. Good. We also hope that others listening have enjoyed this latest podcast in the Arbitral Insights Women in Arbitration mini-series, and that everyone will tune back in over the coming months. Many thanks. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.